All right, John eleven forty five to 57, God's word says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that's Jesus, he had raised Lazarus from the dead, if you don't remember, believed in him. So they were so struck by the situation that they placed their faith and trust, their confidence in Jesus. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the council's called the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So they acknowledge that Jesus is performing signs, that he is in fact a miracle worker. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now you're getting at the heart of the issue with these religious leaders and why they continue to reject Jesus. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. This is interesting. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So the whole world uh, brought to Christ. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he, will, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, public orders, that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him, that is, Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. What does power really look like? When we think of power throughout human history, we often associate it with military might or pure aggression or a desire to conquer. Names like Napoleon Bonaparte come to mind or Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar. We may think of political powers such as the British Empire. We may think of American military heroes like Eisenhower or powerful orators like Winston Churchill. In some form or fashion, power in our finite understanding is usually exerting pure force over another person or people group. In this passage, we have a collision of two powerful figures, Caiaphas and Jesus. We're shown that God's true power rested in the humble life of Jesus, God's serpent-crushing Messiah, who is is a humble, truthful, and he's connected to the least of these. He's not the ideal portrait of power that comes to mind when we think of human power. And this brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. Two powerful figures face off. One unknowingly tells the future reality of substitutionary salvation. I want to bring you up to speed this morning. Remember uh, in the passage just before this, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, his friend, word is spreading among the, the Jews and many have believed the passage says here. But some have, have gone away, have rejected Jesus. They've run from him to tell the Jewish leaders, known as the Jewish leaders at this time are known as the Sanhedrin. That's like the, the ruling council, the most powerful Jewish leadership group. They're, they're concerned about how this Jesus fellow, right, 
is going to affect their positions of power. And we see this in verses 49 to 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, so the the ruling council, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, obviously, he was not speaking this positively. He wanted Jesus to die because he was a threat to their power and their authority. But God used those words as a prophetic utterance of what was to come, which is Jesus' substitutionary death. And an interesting dynamic is at play that requires some explaining. So I want to explain some just kind of historical nuances that are going on here. There, there's two distinct groups that are usually not in agreement that have come together now and are disturbed by the news of Jesus' miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. This group, again, is called the Sanhedrin. And they're the major governing body of the Jews, and they handle all the local affairs of the Jewish people under Roman leadership. And they want to keep it that way. They want to keep the power. They want to maintain power, and they view Jesus as a threat to that power. He's so much of a threat that two opposed groups are brought together to scheme against Jesus. These groups are called the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were were the primary Jewish political leadership as they held positions within the priesthood. That's why Caiaphas is the high priest. He's a Sadducee, thus controlling much of the temple activities. They also desired to keep their power and and do so by not upsetting Roman leadership. They didn't want to upset the, the Roman leaders over them. The Pharisees were more of kind of the people's leader. They were the people's people. The common folk looked up to the Pharisees. They were not as close with the Roman leadership and were usually not close with the Sadducees. There was a a, a steep disagreement against them. But when you have a common enemy, Jesus, that threatens to disrupt the power structures of a society, what do you do? You join forces, don't you? And that's what's going on. This is what's going on behind the scenes. And and here it is, ironically, that Caiaphas, the most powerful Jew of the time, unknowingly prophesies of the substitutionary death of Jesus, right? This is the true power of God that we see at play here, that God can use a humble man like Jesus to overcome the spiritual darkness of the world. Moreover, that God can use a statement meant to deeply harm Jesus for good. Only God is powerful enough to do that. This is how powerful God truly is. We see true power also in the willingness of Jesus to to go to the greatest lengths and depths to save his people. We call this the, the penal substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, that he took the wrath of God on our behalf and has averted that away from those who will place their faith and trust in him. That's what we mean by a substitutionary Sacrifice. Jesus, I believe, said it best in John 15, 13 to 14. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, substitute himself for his friends. And then he says to his disciples, he says to us, those who have placed their faith and trust in him, you are my friends if you do what I command you. This is the overarching idea of this section. God's power versus the power of darkness. And with this, we have five key points in this passage coupled with, I put some questions in your notes there for you to wrestle with that we should be asking of ourselves. From the outset, we understand a powerful decision. This is our first point. A powerful decision must be made and a question must be answered. Powerful decision. 
This is the decision. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I want to make something very clear to you this morning. Each and every person right here in this room who is who's confronted with the gospel, that's the good news about Jesus, has a decision to make. And it, and it connects to the question, who is Jesus? We find, we find two possibilities to this powerful, eternal decision. Let's look at verses 45 and 46, right from the outset. So again, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. As a result, the passage now says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that's Jesus, this is the first way that we can decide. It says, believed in him. That's one way we can decide. But there's a second way. What happens? But some of them went to the Pharisees, right? They ran away. In grade school, what did we call them? Tattletale, right? They went to the Pharisees, and they told them what Jesus had done. I'm going to assume something. They're running away from Christ. They don't truly believe in him. They're going to, to tell on Jesus. Two ways that you can respond to Jesus. Come to him in belief or run from him in disbelief. In this passage, the unbelievers literally run away from God's power toward the world's power. Each of us in this room belongs to one of these two camps. Either we are with Jesus or we're running from him. There's no middle ground. There's no fence riding with Jesus. We're either for him or against him. John the Baptist clearly answered this question, who is Jesus, right? That's the question that we're wrestling with. Who is Jesus? John 1.29, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, this is what he says Jesus is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? The substitutionary sacrifice for our salvation, now, I want to explain this a little bit about John. John the Baptist would later wrestle with his, his own profession and, and declaration. You see, John, John's earthly life wasn't easy. What ended up happening to John? Do you guys know? He lost his head. Earthly life didn't go well for John. And, and he would send his own disciples, John's disciples, to question Jesus. Are you truly the Messiah? Because things don't seem to be changing. So we know that for those who trust and follow Jesus, it's not always easy. It wasn't easy for John the Baptist, but he remained faithful to follow Jesus. Later, Peter, another follower of Jesus, another man who struggled to remain faithful, right? He denied Jesus three times. He boldly answers the question. Again, this is our question. Who is Jesus in Acts 2.36? When he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's bold now to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And he answers this question for us when he says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, he's talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ. We can say Messiah or Savior, Lord and Savior. This Jesus whom you've crucified. Who is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter tells us he is Lord and Savior. We must all personally conclude on the question. We must answer the question for ourselves. Our parents can't answer it for us. Our spouse can't answer it for us. You have to answer, who is Jesus? Number two, we see 
powerful religion, and we're going to answer this question, where is your hope? Or we're going to ask this question of ourselves, where is your hope? Religion is powerful in our lives. We've seen it powerful on the, on the world stage. It's so powerful, it calls people to do radical things. We witnessed that on our home soil in, in a momentous event on September 11th, 2001. It was religion that drove those men to fly planes into buildings. We also know the bloody history of power religion that occurred throughout the Crusades. You guys learned the, the crusade, about the Crusades in history class where the Muslims and the Christians fought bloody battles to take land back from each other? But this is not the way that God desires to advance his kingdom, is it? This brings us to the question, where is your hope? Is it in worldly methods of power or in God's power? Verse 47 and 48, So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I want to stop there. This is interesting. They are acknowledging that Jesus is performing miraculous signs. Signs in line with what they would anticipate from the Messiah. There was one thing absent. He wasn't overthrowing the Romans and taking the throne of David. They acknowledge the power of Jesus, but they decide not to receive him as their own Lord. They go on. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, right, and reject us, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their intentions are brought to light. Nothing is kept in the darkness. The light is shined on their intentions. Where's the Sanhedrin's hope, right? Where is our hope? That's the question. Their hope is in this. It's in the power structures of this world. It's in the ruling of the Jewish people. It's in maintaining the status quo, protecting the sacred temple, even when the true temple of God, Jesus, is in their midst. Their hope is misguided and misplaced. And because of this, they miss out on the greatest blessing anyone could ever experience. Here's the greatest blessing that anybody could ever experience. It's a relationship with God. This is what Jesus brings. He doesn't bring another relationship or another religion. He brings a relationship with himself. He brings a true hope through a relationship with him. But, but this relationship calls us to analyze our hope and where it's placed. Is it in him, Jesus, or is it in the things of this world? These religious leaders have placed their hope in power, prestige, and financial gain. But Jesus calls his disciples to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. This is the test of where our hope truly is. And he tells us this in Matthew 16, 24 to 26. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, meaning if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? These men and their accusations and their scheming against Jesus have forfeited eternal life with him. They've made their decision. They have declared where their, their hope is at. And so I ask you this morning, where is your hope? 
Is it in political power? Is it in your 401k? Is it in the success of your kids, the fame of your own name, success at work, sexual quote-unquote freedom, educational success? Or is it in the power of the one true God found through a relationship in Jesus Christ? Where's your hope? Point number three, we see a powerful deity. Who is your God? And I put little g God on purpose. Who is your God? We witness the power of God in this next section because God takes a devious statement from Caiaphas and turns it into a beautiful prophecy. Verses 49 to 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John gives us this little editorial note there. He opens our eyes to the truth of what Caiaphas has just said. The Bible says this, he did not say this of his own accord, right, of his own will, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Both those who are near to Jesus at that time and those who are scattered all around the world. So from that day on, they, back to the Sanhedrin, made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. Who is your God? It's obvious that who the little G God of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin is, it's themselves. They've put themselves in the position of God. And this is sin at its, at its heart, is that we put our wants, our will, our desire in the position of what God desires for us. We think we know best. They've placed their hope and confidence in their own will and power, their own ability, not in the power of the one true God, Yahweh, who is made known in the person and work of Jesus. And our God, this is a big G God, the God we worship at North Bullet Christian Church, is the one true God who is powerful enough to do this, to make beautiful art out of our own mess. He does so here with Caiaphas's words, where Caiaphas thought he was taking care of the problem, right? Jesus, God was fulfilling the sacrificial demands of the law. This is how powerful God is, that he can weave this beautiful story that we can see. Jesus is this. This is a story that he has woven for us. Jesus is the final, once and for all, sacrifice pictured in the Old Testament law. This, this passage is filled with an Old Testament allusion. It's the allusion to the two goats that are sacrificed, right? The goat that is killed at the temple and the scapegoat that is sent off to carry away the sins of the people. Let me read uh, from Leviticus to you. Leviticus 16. Then he, that's the high priest, shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Then he shall kill the goat of, of the sin offering, sacrifice it, that is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, so in the, the holy of holies, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he, this is important, thus he shall make atonement, we'll say payment there, might be a word that we understand, payment, atonement, cleaning for the holy place because of the uncleanness, the sin of the people of Israel, 
because of their transgressions, all their sins. Moving along in the passage. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall now present the live goat. And Aaron, the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away, this is where we get the word scapegoat from, into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat, this is important, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself, taking it away from the camp to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Thus taking, just giving us a picture of God taking away the sins of the people. Our God is powerful enough that he has orchestrated all the events of history to culminate in this portrait of sacrifice that we find in Jesus, which fulfills all sacrifices for sin. It's why, thank God, we don't have to slaughter animals anymore. Jesus was slaughtered for us. Jesus is both the goat that is slaughtered to atone or cover the sins of the people to pay the price for our shame and wickedness, and he is also the scapegoat who takes our sin far away from us. Simply put, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. On our behalf, wash clean of all our shortcomings, past, present, and future. Christian, you are forgiven through Christ. And he takes away our sin. It is drawn far away from us so that we don't have to dabble in sin any longer. We have a way out of sin through the powerful spirit of God who lives in us. The reality of the present situation is clear, though. Back into the story. Jesus is in danger, and he needs to get away until the appointed time of his death. We know that Jesus will die, but right now is not the time. Because it has to be done on his terms. He's powerful enough to make that happen. Not on the terms of of Caiaphas and his cronies. Jesus leaves this place of dark scheming, and he goes to his people. This brings us to our fourth point. We see Jesus go to powerful community. I'm going to ask you this question. Who are your people? Jesus goes to powerful community. Who are your people? Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with who? The disciples. His people, right? He went to his people. I want you to notice something here. At the most critical and difficult point in Jesus' earthly life, even he, God in the flesh, didn't run away from the people who cared for him the most. What did he do? He went to them. He went straight to them. Who are your people? I see too many Christians run away from their people in times of adversity. But Jesus' example was to run to his people. Family, hear this. You have a people here. Your people are right here. We got you. We got your back. We want to pray for you. We want to bear your burdens with you. We do. We want to correct you too when you're off the path. 
Who are your people? Do you have people like that in your life? Who do you run to? We need each other in the good times and even more so in the mess, don't we? We need one another. Run to your people. Proverbs says this in uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Point number five, we see powerful politics. And we're going to answer this question, or we're going to ask this question, where is your allegiance? Where is your allegiance? 55 to 57. I'm going to set it up here. Jesus has, he's been threatened. The Sanhedrin has made clear what they want to do. They want him dead. It's not time yet. So Jesus goes to his people, and now there's murmuring going on among the people because the Sanhedrin has made it very clear. If you come in contact with Jesus, you let us know because we're going to take care of our problem, aren't we? It's Passover. There's an expectation that every faithful Jewish man will make his way to the temple. 55 to 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. The intentions are out there, aren't they? And so it brings us to this question, where's your allegiance? What are they going to do? We'll later find out where Judas's allegiance is, won't we? And so as we look to ourselves, is, is your allegiance to the powerful political structures of our time and society. Okay, we're confronted with this reality right now. Is your, is your only hope in the next president? I'm not saying this to, to say that that's, that's bad to be involved in, in political action and to vote. We should do that as Christians. But if your hope is in who the next president's going to be, just look over the last 20 years or so. It's been a sad disappointment, hasn't it? Is your hope in the next president, uh, closer to home, is your hope in the next governor? Or an amendment to the law? Or is your hope, is your allegiance in this? Is your allegiance in King Jesus alone? Why would you ever place your allegiance to such an inconsistent and volatile power structure as that of politics? Place your allegiance in Jesus because ultimately all power resides in him. God wins. Let us be clear about that. The end is not hidden. Scripture makes very clear who will be victorious and who has been victorious already by raising from the dead. That's Jesus who sits right now in a position of power at the right hand of the Father. Place your allegiance in in Jesus because ultimately all power resides in him. It's why his words declare this truth. I end with this. Psalm 2 verses 1 to 4. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's wars raging right now. Russia and Ukraine all around the world. Little conflicts and tussles. Right here in our land, probably the most divided time in history except from the Civil War. 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you know what God's reaction is to all of this? He who sits in heavens, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Why? Because he is more powerful than anything we can imagine. He's more powerful than the president, the governor, than our laws. God, Jesus, is over all things. Where is your allegiance? Will you bow to the altar of the world, or will you bow to the altar of King Jesus? Place your faith in him and wrestle with these questions. Who is Jesus? Where is your hope? Who is your God? Who are your people? Where is your allegiance?